0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God.
1: Good morning. Hear these words from 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 28. Samuel also said to Saul, Lord, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him, on the way when he was, came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Tilaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek, and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get, out, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah Hiv- all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul... It was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is the bleating of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spread the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did, you not anoint, did the Lord not anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is the iniquity of idolatry. But you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. But because I feared the people and obeyed their voice... Now, therefore, please pardon my sin, and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his road, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you.
0: This is our final week in this series, Have It Your Way. And if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15, that passage that was just read for us a moment ago. And, you know, I am so proud of each and every one of these graduates. You know, no matter how many years go by, you always look back on this time, this time in your life of high school graduation, as one of those. Uh, big just milestones in in your life. Um, Yesterday I was down at at the baseball fields uh, with my boys and I was wearing this old red t-shirt. I think it's the oldest t-shirt that is still in my wardrobe uh, because I got it 21 years ago uh, from Palm Bay High School my senior year. And I should probably not still be wearing this T-shirt because that thing, that baby is thin. I mean, that that T-shirt is a shadow of its former self. Uh, It has been so long since I got it. Again, for me, it's been 21 years uh, since high school graduation. For some in this room, it might have been twice that number of years or even three times that number of years. And yet we know that for these graduates, when they look back on this time in their life, they will always view it. Uh, as an important time, as a big milestone in their life. And so it is right that we celebrate with these graduates today because they have all reached this point so well. And they have all started out so well. And yet what I want to speak to us today about from the Word of God is that what matters most for these graduates and really what matters most for all of us isn't how we start out in life it's how we finish. And really in that way, our life is much like a race. You know, you can shoot out of the starting gates, and you can take a commanding lead at the beginning of a race, and you can still end up finishing dead last. Because it isn't really about how you start, it's about how you finish. In our church this year, we've been going through this book of 1 Samuel together, verse by verse, and For the last several weeks, we've been studying the life of the first king of Israel, a man named King Saul. And King Saul is a great example of someone who starts out well, but who doesn't finish so well. And in that way, King Saul's life is really a cautionary tale, a cautionary story for all of us, because we don't want our life to turn out like his. And just a minute ago, Evan read uh, the majority of chapter 15 for us. But before we uh, get to that text, let's look at just the last few verses of chapter 14 together. Chapter 14, starting in verse 47, it says, So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, ...against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, and Malchishua. And the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merab and the name of the younger Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam... The daughter of Ahemaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was a fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. Let's just pause for a moment pray together before we go further. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the power of your word, how it speaks to our hearts, how it speaks to where we are in life. and God, today, would you take this word that you have given, would you use it in our life that we might be changed and that we might trust in you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. What we just read at the end of chapter fourteen is a short summary of King Saul's reign, and I think what is most surprising to us, especially if you have been with us for uh, some of our study of the Book of First Samuel, is really how positive and how glowing this uh, summary of King Saul's life and reign uh, really is. Because again, if you were here last week, you know that the rest of chapter 14 uh, really is pretty negative about King Saul. The chapter before that, chapter 13, is pretty negative about King Saul. The text that we're going to look at today, chapter 15, is pretty negative about King Saul. And so, which is it, right? Was King Saul a good king, uh, or was King Saul a bad king? And I think the answer depends on what vantage point you are looking at his life from. This summary that we just read at the end of chapter 14 is is really a listing of all of King Saul's accomplishments, and in fairness to him, his accomplishments, militarily speaking, were, were many. Saul was a great warrior. He fought off Israel's enemies on every side. As you look at the different names there, uh, he fought off their enemies to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. And and so really when you boil it all down, he he, he basically was successful in, in the main thing that the people of Israel wanted him to do. Militarily speaking, he did a good job. He led Israel out in battle and he won just about everywhere That he turned. But with that said, what we know from the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is that from God's vantage point, Saul was not a success, but Saul was a failure. In fact, at the end of this chapter, because of Saul's disobedience, God will say that he actually regretted making Saul the king of his people. And so here you have this man who was successful at war. He was successful according to the people's definition of what they wanted a king to be. And yet he was a failure at life. He was a failure at being king according to God. Again, we're talking today about how important it is not just to to start out well in life, but to finish well in life. And we can learn from King Saul's mistake so that hopefully by God's grace, we don't end up like he did. And so as we walk through this story together, there's several lessons we can learn from King Saul's life. And really the first one is kind of staring us in the face Already, like Saul, our lives will not end well if we define success by the world's standards instead of by God's standard. Our lives will not end well if we define our success by the world's standards instead of God's standards. Again, by the world's standards, according to that standard, Saul was a successful king. Because all the world would look at is how Saul went out and fought those battles. How he went out and won the day. How he protected his people. And yet in the end, it isn't what the world thought of Saul that really mattered. That's why only a few verses in this book are given to his list of accomplishments. Whereas chapter after chapter after chapter is given to a detailed account of Saul's spiritual failures. Because in the end... It isn't what the world thought of him that matters, it's what God says about him that really matters. I think the application for our lives today is is pretty obvious. It's it's possible, it's possible for these graduates. To go out into the world and to be successful in every way that the world would measure success. To, to go on to college, to get a great degree, to, to get a wonderful high-paying job, to, to get married, to have 2.7 kids, right? To, to climb the, the ladder of, of success, to, to do everything that the world says you need to do to be successful. To have a resume at the end of your life that, it, that just sparkles like Saul, to go out in your life and to have victories every direction that you turn, and yet to come to the end of your life and realize that you failed in the only way that really matters. Jesus put it this way, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You know, many times we look at people who seem to be winning at life and We can become convinced that that's really what life is about. But I love how one person put it. He said this, The Lord is not looking for winners, but for disciples. He's looking for people who would take up their cross and follow Christ. He's looking for people who will accept his definition of success and understand that his definition of success is really, in the end, the only one that matters. You know, what happened to Saul in chapter 15 really drives that point home. Chapter 15 opens with Samuel coming to Saul and saying this to him, Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Samuel was saying, Saul, the Lord is the one who made you king in the first place. And so now you need to heed his voice. You need to listen to what I'm about to tell you, and you need to do it. And here's the basic command on this day that the Lord gave Saul. Verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, no doubt This is one of the most difficult things to read in Scripture. I'm guessing this is probably not anyone's life verse in this room, right? This this was probably not written on any graduation cards, right, to to these graduates uh, this past week or this weekend because what the Lord is ordering Saul to do here is to go and to wipe out an entire people group, the Amalekites. And this makes us very uncomfortable as modern readers because we read this and we think that this is some type of ethnic cleansing or or some type of uh, Islamic style jihad. But, but regardless of what we might think about this, according to the Lord, this is his justice. This is his holy vengeance being poured out upon a sinful people. And like it says in verse 2, their sin actually started 300 years Before this, look at what God said 300 years earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. He said, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God, therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And so right there, 300 years before King Saul, the Lord had announced that because of their sin, that one day he was going to blot out the Amalekites from the earth. And now that day had come. And now God commands Saul to be his instrument, to execute his vengeance upon this people, this sentence that he had set upon their lives years and years before. Now again, we wrestle with that. We wrestle with whether it is right for God to command this, to blot out a whole people like this. But this is where we need to remember a couple of things. And the first thing we need to remember is that the Lord is the one who has made us. That our lives are not our own, but our lives are in his hand. Life and death is in the hands of our creator. And when we look back earlier in scripture, we read in Genesis 6 in the first book of the Bible that there was a time when the Lord looked on the sinfulness of humanity and it was so sinful that the Lord brought a flood down upon the whole world and only eight souls were saved, Noah and his family who were on the ark. And then we turn to the other end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, and we read that one day a far worse judgment is going to come on all of those who have rebelled against King Jesus. And so instead, I think of questioning whether or not the Lord is being fair to the Amalekites here. We need to accept that because we are sinners just like they were, And because the Bible says that the wages of our sin is death, that the Lord will be perfectly just and perfectly fair one day when we receive the same judgment that they did. And the Bible says one day we will receive the same judgment that they did unless we turn in faith to his provision for our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, and accept the forgiveness that is only found in his name. Now the language that God uses there in verse 3 of utterly destroying the Amalekites means that this was a different type of war than any other type of war that Saul would be involved with. This was the Lord's Battle And so everything was placed under a ban, both the people and the possessions that were there in the same way that God did with the city of Jericho under Joshua years before. And so when Saul and his army went to battle against the Amalekites, it was very clear that they were to bring nothing back that everything belonged to the Lord. Everything was placed under a band. This was not a battle that was about them getting rich and getting stuff and getting animals. The command of God was very clear. They were to bring nothing back with them, and we'll see how Saul did with that. Now, again, just like he did in life in general, Saul starts out in this battle very well. Verse 4 says he immediately obeyed. He rallied the troops he shows kindness to this group of people called the Kenites. These were descendants of Moses' father-in-law named Jethro, and they were living in the same vicinity as the Amalekites. And so he basically warned them and said, "Y'all need to get out of Dodge before this goes down." And they listened and they did. And. And in verse 7, it says that Saul attacked the Amalekites, that he fought with them over a large, extensive area. So far, so good. But then we come to verses 8 and 9, and we see that Saul did not do exactly as the Lord commanded. It says, He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. And the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. And then in verses 10 and 11, the scene changes for a minute, and we read about the Lord coming to his prophet Samuel that night and telling Samuel about what Saul had just done. If you look at verse 11, this is what God says to Samuel I greatly regret. That I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now, when it says there that God regretted making Saul king, and he actually says that twice in this chapter, it does not mean that the Lord regretted making Saul king in the way that we regret things. It doesn't mean that the Lord says, oops, I must have made a mistake there. Right? I didn't, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see this coming, that Saul was going to do this, that Saul was going to turn out like this. I wish I could go back and do something different. That's not what the text means when it says he regretted this. It means that God, even though he knew what would happen, even though he knew exactly how this was going to turn out, still is mourning over how it did turn out. He's still mourning over the disobedience in Saul's heart. He's mourning over the fact that he knows that it isn't just an isolated act of disobedience, but that Saul has turned his heart away from following the Lord. And that would become true, even more so in the chapters to come. And it wasn't just the Lord who was upset. Samuel was upset, too. It says he cried out to God all night long. And we don't, we're not told why. I think it was probably for a lot of reasons. I think he had grown to love Saul, and he was mourning for Saul and what he had become. I think Samuel was upset about Israel and what this might mean for God's people, and I think even on a personal level, Samuel was upset about what this meant for him, that the next day he was going to have to wake up and confront King Saul, the king of God's people, and tell him what God had said to him the night before. Verse 12 says, early the next morning Samuel got up And he was on his way to go meet King Saul, and then he learned that King Saul had set up a monument for himself after this battle. You can tell that things are getting worse. And he's told that Saul is in Gilgal, and so he goes to Gilgal, and he confronts him there, the same place where he confronted him back in chapter 13. But this would be the last time that the prophet Samuel would ever confront Saul in his life. And and apparently Saul thought that Samuel was going to be happy with him. Saul thought that Samuel was going to give him a medal or something because of what he had done and how obedient he had been. And so when Saul turns around and he sees Samuel there, this is what he says to him in verse 13. Blessed are you of the Lord, Samuel. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And yet in one of the classic comeback lines in the Bible, Samuel says, oh yeah, you've you've kept the commandment of the Lord. Look in verse 14. What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? In other words, Saul, if you really obeyed the commandment of the Lord, why is there evidences of your disobedience all around me And that brings us to the second lesson we can learn from King Saul. Like him, we can know that our lives will not end well if we think that we're good with God because we mostly obeyed him. You can tell that's what Saul thinks here. He's good with God because he mostly obeyed God. Look in verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, but I I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission uh, on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agad, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took the plunder, the sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And so he he says, look, yes, I I kept a few of the animals, but only to sacrifice to the Lord. Really, it was the people that did it. We'll come back to that in a minute. But but he said, I I went on the mission. I mean, basically, I did what God said. I mean, Samuel, isn't that enough? Of course, it wasn't enough. It wasn't even close, and yet I'm afraid that the way that Saul thought about obeying God is the way that many of us, even in the church today, think about obeying God also. We think that that 90% obedience is enough, That if we're obedient to God in 90% of the areas of our life, then, then, then we're, we're fine with that. We're totally at, at peace with that because, you know, we're going to church and, and we're staying out of trouble for the most part. And so, you know, I mean, what, what, what if we're sleeping around with our boyfriend or our girlfriend a little bit? I mean, what's, what's the big deal with that? Or what if we're cheating on our spouse? Or what if, you know, what's the big deal if I'm stealing a little bit from my employer here and there? I mean, what if maybe God has called me to do something, to go to the mission field or to do something else with my life and I'm I'm just kind of ignoring him on that, but but I'm obeying God in the rest of the areas of my life. I'm I'm obeying God in like 90% of the boxes. Isn't that enough? And yet... What Samuel says to Saul so clearly here is that 90% obedience is not enough. Partial obedience is disobedience. If we do part of what God tells us to do, but we don't do the rest just means that we didn't do what God told us to do. If we are obeying God in some areas of our life, it doesn't take away from the fact that we're not obeying God in other areas of our life. And so church, we cannot believe the lie that mostly obeying God makes us good with God. It, it doesn't. We have to do better than mostly obeying God. And as we'll talk about more later on, that starts with trusting the only one who did do better than that the only one who did obey God 100% of the time. And that's the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a third way that we can ensure that our lives won't end well, and that's if we do like Saul did, if we make excuses and blame everyone but ourselves for our disobedience. That's That's what Saul does here, and we've seen Saul do this before. Back in chapter 13, after he offered that sacrifice that as king he had no business offering, when Samuel comes and confronts him, he blames Samuel for being late. He blames the people for running away. He blames everybody but himself for his own sin, and that's what he does here As well, look in verse 15. This is after Samuel says, well, what about these animals that I hear everywhere? Aren't they evidences of your disobedience? This is what Saul said. Well, they, the people, have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. So here is Saul, and he's kind of blame-shifting again, right? He's saying, it wasn't, wasn't me, Sam, it wasn't me. It was the people that they did it. They brought back some of these animals, and Samuel, they only did it because they wanted to sacrifice them to the Lord your God, right? This is really about you, it's really about God, it's about sacrifices. This is what we're doing, and it was the people who did it anyway. And Samuel's not going to let Saul get away with these excuses, but he tries. Sometimes we try too, I think. Sometimes we make excuses for our sin. You know, we blame other people. It, it was my parents' fault. It was, it was my upbringing. It's, it's my temperament. It's my kids. It's, it's because of my wife. It's because of my husband. It's because of my job. It's because of the stress I'm under. It's because uh, I ate some bad fish. It's because of my financial situation, right? I mean, we, we come up with excuses too the problem is, as long as we're coming up with excuses, we're ignoring the real problem. Because the real problem is not out there somewhere. The real problem is in here. The real problem is in our heart. And if we don't admit that, then it'll never be fixed. The first step is to get real about our sin before God. But if we never do that, then life will not end well for us, just like it didn't end well for King Saul. In verse 16, Samuel had heard just about enough of Saul's jabbering, and so he says this to him. He says, be quiet. Stop talking. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, speak on. And then Samuel reminded him about back when Saul was little in his own eyes, before he started building monuments to himself after victories. And then he reminded him about the clear commandment that God had given to him to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And then he says this in verse 19, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of God? And then, as we looked at earlier verses 20 and 21, Saul continues to protest. He continues to blame shift. He says, I went on mission. I did what I was supposed to do. We brought back animals, but it was only to sacrifice them. And and even though Saul and the people almost certainly had other motives than sacrificing for bringing back those animals, Samuel seizes on that word sacrifice. And he gives us one of the most memorable statements. From a prophet in the Old Testament. Look at it in verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, Samuel was saying, Saul, what do you think makes God happier? What what do you think brings God more delight? Do you think it brings God more delight for you to put an animal on the altar and sacrifice that animal to the Lord? Or do you think it brings more delight to the heart of God when you do what God says? And he was basically saying to him, Saul, don't think for a nanosecond that you can do something like make a sacrifice and it will make up for the fact that you have disobeyed God. But Saul thought that's how it worked. And sometimes we do too. And this is another lesson we need to learn from Saul's life because like him, our lives will not end well if we think we can make up for the wrong things that we have done by doing some good things for God. But again, that's how Saul was thinking. He thought, you know, yeah, I I didn't do everything exactly the way that God said, but, but I'm sure after I put a few sacrifices on the table, right after I throw God a bone or two, I mean, he'll probably look past the things that I've done. It's probably not that big of a deal to God anyway, and what Samuel says to him here is a strong wake-up call that that's not how it works with God at all, and, and yet again, I think we're in need sometimes of that, of that wake-up call as well, because sometimes we get confused on that too, we think that if we do certain religious things and it makes up for us living a life of disobedience before God. I, you know, I, I've talked with some Catholics sometime who, who, who speak almost as if, you know, I can live any way that I want to during the week. But as long as I go to mass on the weekend, as long as I occasionally go to confession and I tell the priest the things that I did wrong. Well, then I have kind of a license to go out and live any way I want to for the next week. Unless you think I'm picking on Catholics, it's the same with many of us as evangelicals as well. We think that, well, you know, I go to church and I'm in a small group and I listen to Chris Tomlin on the radio in my car. And so I'm pretty much a good person. And so that gives me a license. It gives me like a credit card to, to kind, of, kind of do whatever I want. But that's not what this passage says. The passage says God cares far more about a heart of obedience than he does about our religious actions he doesn't just want to see us doing religious things on sunday he wants to see us living out a faithful obedient life from monday to saturday and i just want to be clear on this I, I, i'm not preaching and, and this will be more clear later on in the message i am not preaching today a, a message of salvation by by works Because the truth of the word of God is that none of us can be good enough to please God on our own. But but here's a message we need to take to heart as well. As Christians, we cannot think that because we have been saved by grace, that that means we have a license to go and sin and do whatever we want to do. If that's the way that we think, we do have reason to question whether we have ever been saved at all. Because the heart of a person who has been changed by the grace of God is not a heart that says, well, thank you, God, so much for that. Now let me go and live however I want. No, the heart of a person who has truly been saved by the grace of God is the heart of a person who says, God, I cannot believe that you've shown me such love. I cannot believe that you've shown me such grace. God, would you help me? Would you give me the strength to pour my very life out in obedience to you? Would you help me, God, to love you because you first loved me? That's the heart of someone who's been changed by the grace of God. And you know what? God sees through all of our pretension. We might fool other people for a while, but we'll never fool God. He sees it. He sees through all of Saul's misdirections, all of Saul's religious pretense, all of Saul's excuses. And you know what? God sees through all of that in our lives as well. He knows whether we're for real or not. Friend, what does God see right now when he looks? At your heart and when he looks at mine. Verse 23 records how Samuel tells Saul that his sin of disobedience is not the little deal that he thought it was. He says, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. I think sometimes we minimize our sin as well. You know, we say, well, you know, not everybody's perfect. And, you know, at least I'm not a murderer. Or at least I'm not a whatever else. You know, back then they probably would have said, well, at least I'm not doing witchcraft. At least I'm not an idolater. At least I'm not bowing down to a statue of Baal. And yet what Samuel is saying to Saul is, Saul, that's exactly what you're doing. You might as well have gone to see a witch. And by the way, by the end of this book, that's exactly what Saul does. He says, Saul, your sin is not a little deal. It's, It's a big deal. And then he lowers the boom at the end of verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And even though it will take another 15 chapters for this to play out, effectively Saul's reign was over at this very moment. Because the word had been spoken. He had rejected the Lord and the Lord had now rejected him. And he said, I'm going to give the kingdom to someone who is better than you. And the rest of the book of Samuel is about meeting who that person is and seeing them come to reign. Now after hearing that, after hearing these very hard words from the prophet Samuel, d- does Saul repent? Right, This is his opportunity. Does he, does he repent? Does he hear these words and, and truly repent before God? And sadly, the answer is no. That's the fifth and final lesson we can learn from the tragedy of Saul's life. Our lives will not end well if we never genuinely repent of our sin and follow God. Now, now, why do I say Saul didn't genuinely repent? Well, if you look at verse 24, he does say some of the right words. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people, because I obeyed their voice. And so again, he says some of the right words. He admits that he sinned. He admits that he transgressed. And, And yet, as you read on in this passage, you can tell that Saul's repentance was a sham. Look in verse 25. It says, Now therefore, Samuel, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may go and worship the Lord. And it just all seems so easy, doesn't it? He wants Samuel to just kind of wave a magic wand or something and make it go away that he ever did this. He says, just, just come back with me right now. Let's have a worship service with the rest of all the people. They can think everything's okay. Let's just kind of, you know, smooth this deal over. Yeah, I've sinned, but, but you know, let's, let's move on with it. And Samuel can see right through that, and he says, no, I'm not going back with you. You rejected the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you. And so Saul begins to realize how serious this is. And as Samuel, the prophet of God, turns to walk away, there's a very vivid picture here as Saul falls down on the ground and reaches out and takes the corner of Samuel's robe as he's starting to walk away from him. And in that moment, as he reaches for the corner of Samuel's robe, the robe tears. And Samuel turns around and he sees the tear in his robe and he says, Saul, God has torn the kingdom away from you. And what happened with his robe was a parable of what God had just done in Saul's life. He's torn the kingdom from you, and he will give it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Look at what happens next, verse 29. And also the strength of Israel, this is what Samuel says, will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people. Before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Verse 30 really reveals what was most important in Saul's heart, doesn't it? What was most important in Saul's heart was not being right with God. What was most important in Saul's heart was the people thinking a lot about Saul. In fact, here is the truth Saul was more concerned about saving face. Than seeking the Lord. Saul was more concerned about saving face than seeking the Lord. And you know, when you are ready to genuinely repent and turn to the Lord, you really don't care what other people think about you. It really doesn't matter what position you're in. It really doesn't matter whether people's perception of you goes up or down, what you care about. In fact, the only thing you care about in that moment is being right with the God who made you. And that's how you can know if your repentance is. Genuine or whether your repentance like Saul is just a sham, Jesus taught us that those who mourn, those who truly mourn over the ugliness of their sin, they will be comforted by the Lord. See how this part of the story ends. Verse 32, it says, So Samuel said, Bring Agad, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agad came to him cautiously, and Agad said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. right, Samuel, can't we just let bygones be bygones here? Right? Hadn't there been enough death and bloodshed today? Verse 33, Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel, you know, if this Bible story were a movie, it would certainly not be rated G, would it? Here we have Samuel, this old man, this old prophet of God, who's probably not killed a man in his whole life. And yet in this story, even in his old age, he is willing to do what Saul was not willing to do. To be obedient to God. And then the sadness of this final verse. We read that even though Saul and Samuel only lived ten miles apart, Samuel never went to see Saul for the rest of his life. He mourned over him because he loved him, but he knew it wouldn't do any good. He knew that Saul had no heart desire to obey the word of the Lord, and so why should he bring the word of the Lord to him? This king who started out well, but whose life ended in spiritual tragedy. Thankfully for us, though, Saul's failures would not stop the Lord's plan from saving us. And so after this story in chapter 16, which we'll pick up with several weeks from now after Father's Day, God had one more mission for Samuel, to go to a man's house named Jesse and to find his youngest son who was out in the field watching over the sheep and to anoint him with oil as the next king of Israel, this man who was better than King Saul. And King David was better than King Saul, But he was still just a part of the plan because one day, many, many centuries later, God would send someone who was infinitely better than King David. A son of David who would perfectly obey God's commands. You know, earlier we said that mostly obeying God is not enough, and it isn't enough. Jesus told us, in fact, in Matthew 5, that we have to be perfect if we want to go to heaven. And the problem with that is that none of us in this room, myself certainly included, are perfect. So what are we to do? Well, we are to put our faith in the only one who was perfect. The only one who did always do what the Father commanded. The heart of this message today is not that we should go out and try harder to be good. Because we can't be good enough. Our best is not good enough. The answer is to truly trust in the only one who was ever good enough. The only one who didn't just mostly obey God, but who perfectly obeyed God. The only one in whom the Father was well pleased. The only one who was tempted in every point like we are, yet was without sin. And when we put our faith in him, our sins are paid for because Jesus died to pay for those sins at the cross. And when we put our faith in him, the Bible says we get the perfect record of Jesus's righteousness applied to our account. In other words, God looks at me because I believe in Jesus as if I lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. That's really, really good news. But that only happens if we're willing to repent and truly put our faith in Jesus and make him our Savior and our Lord. Make him our Savior and our King. You know, one of the striking images that we talked about a moment ago from this story is when Samuel turns to go away from King Saul and Saul reaches out his hand and he takes a hold of that corner of Samuel's robe and it tears. And in the tearing of that robe, it really was a picture of kind of the failure of King Saul, that the kingdom was, was torn away from him. But you know, it's, it's kind of ironic. In order for our lives to end well, there, there's a sense in which that same thing has to happen in our lives. Because we start out in life wanting to be the king of our own kingdom. And so there's a sense in which in order for our lives to end well, the kingdom has to be torn away from us. For Saul, the kingdom was torn away from him and it was given to David. For us, the kingdom has to be torn away from us and given to the son of David, Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to get off of the throne of our life and to let Jesus Christ, the King of kings, sit there. That's the only way that our lives will end well. And so here's just a final question that I want you to think about. How would you, what would you put in this blank? Right now, blank, is the king of my life. Honestly, today, would you put your own name there? Right now, my name is the king of my life. I I call the shots. I'm in charge. I do what I want to do. I make the plans for my future. Or right now, could you honestly say, Jesus is the king of my life. I want to ask you to stand as we sing together. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, right now I don't think I could put the name Jesus there, but I want to be able to put the name Jesus there. I want Jesus to be my King and my Lord and my Savior. I want to move out of the throne today and I want to let Jesus sit there where he belongs. I want to invite you to come and speak with me. Or speak with one of the other pastors that you see here at the front and say, I want Jesus to be my king. Maybe you need to come and kneel at the altar here because there's an area of disobedience in your life that God is putting his hand on and he wants you just to pray here. He wants you to not care what anybody thinks of you, but to only be concerned about being right with your God today. And so in this moment, you're invited to come and pray here. Whatever God leads you to do, you come as we sing together.